The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll ever put on yourself. I've heard you speak to how the journey of the matured intellect is being able to hold paradox simultaneously. Simultaneously. If you're addicted to pleasure, you're going to be hurt by pain. Anything that you have an infatuation with, the opposite is going to be something you resent. I had a lady in London. She was traumatized at 16. I said, good, go to that moment. What did you perceive? And when she got through, she was not traumatized. She didn't have a label. The suffering is the inability to see both sides simultaneously. We're trying to get rid of the side that we think is the shadow side, but the shadow is just as essential as the other. It's an event. And if you buy into the event and put a label on it, you'll be trapped as a victim of history instead of a master of destiny. If you ask new sets of questions, I can take that same event, transform it into something you're grateful for and get on with your life. Master of Destiny. Some people are familiar with you from your work initially being in the film The Secret. What do you feel like the law of attraction truly is being able to consciously create life in the way that you want it? So the secret behind the secret left out of the secret is... Wow. That was so powerful. I believe that we're here to wake up our genius and contribute innovative, creative, original thinking to the planet. I believe that we're here to be of contribution and service. I believe that you're here to master finances, not be a slave to it. I'm a firm believer that you can do whatever you set your mind to. Woo, this might have been one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Hello, beautiful beings. Welcome back to the Know Thyself podcast, where every single week we get the honor and privilege to sit down with a brilliant mind to learn more about the true nature of self and the world around us every single week. Now, our guest today is a polymath, a world-renowned human behavior expert, an internationally best-selling author and speaker, and he's helped millions of people around the world break past their own limiting beliefs and reach their full potential. This episode is going to be dense. So just a note in advance, um, if you're going to listen and commit to the length of this podcast, um, bust out a pen and a pad. We're going to be exploring the intersection of human values, quantum physics, the hidden order behind it all, human judgment, and a lot of things that I think can really support us all as humans live a more liberated experience. So Dr. John Martini, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, we are on the Know Thyself podcast, and I would love for you to share a little bit about what that means to you. <laughs> the magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies you'll ever put on yourself. So giving yourself permission to be yourself is the most liberating, most fulfilling, most meaningful, most productive and inspiring thing a human being can do. It's been stated for centuries, if not millennia, to know thyself, be thyself, love thyself. And it's true. And being honest with who we are and not having vicissitudes of fluctuation about the facades that we wear liberates us from the bondage of the distractions that most people are trapped in. So being true to yourself is the essence of our existence. When you look at the words, the self, the part that's self in there, what do you, uh, what's the extent of self? <laughs> well, I think it was Schopenhauer, even though I've not found the exact quote, a quote about a quote. It says that we become our true self to the degree that we, you know, reflect and identify ourselves through all things. So really there's no boundary on the real self. We tend to, um, have this illusion of our form. But as Plato says, there's an ideal form that transcends. There's a nominal world beyond the transcendent, you know, the transcendental world beyond the phenomenal world. So 
we become our true self to the degree that we make everything else ourself. And that's the subatomic to the astronomic. The old yogic cities were, were the uh, idea that we're the subatomic world and we're the astronomic world and anywhere in between. So I don't know if there's any boundary that we've found. The, our microscopes and our telescopes are our boundary. The mathematician, Stephen Wolfram, says that we have a bounded awareness and then as we expand that boundary, our awareness of ourselves continues to expand. Mm, I love that. So if someone asks you, who are you? When you internalize that question, what do you feel like is the most aligned, accurate, truthful answer of the question, who am I? Well, I look at what your life demonstrates. <laughs> and uh, if, if, we, if we were to take the earth and it spins in 86,400 seconds in a day, and go one astronomical unit to the sun and look at the earth, whatever we identify ourselves, it becomes an infinitesimal to the sun looking back. Without a telescope, we don't even, we're not even perceptible. If we go about 26,000 light years, 27,000 light years to the Milky Way Center, to Sagittarius A, and look back at the sun and then our planet, which is non-discernible, we're even more infinitesimal. <laughs> if we go to the Lanikea supercluster and look at our galaxy or Milky Way, which is undiscernible and an infinitesimal. We're now an infinitesimal of an infinitesimal of an infinitesimal. And then we realize that we're absolutely uh, nothingness. But yet if we go inside by powers of 10 into the Planck dimensional world, the, the subatomic quantum world, then we become massive. So we're everything. So we're everything and no thing. <laughs> That's interesting that on the macro scale, we're nothing, and on the micro scale, we're everything. We're everything. So, <laughs> so uh, that's why the paradoxes of language and philosophy and, you know, compared to philosophy and religions have used all different types of languages, and it depends on the perspective. Mm. So I don't know if there's any boundary, micro or macro. Um, we could say we're in the continuum. Yeah. We're living in a continuum. So within this relative human experience. A lot of your work has been helping people discover the intersection of human values and identity. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit of your framework of why that's such an important topic to unravel right now. Well, when I was 23, and I was starting professional school, I was very fascinated by why some people walked their talk and others limped their life. Why some did what they said and why many didn't. And I was trying to discern what was the key in that because I wanted to obviously achieve more and um, fill my life more. And I distilled it down to human values, things that they value. And there is a hierarchy of values for people, things that are more important to least important in their life, things that are higher priority, lower priority. In my case, uh, I have a high value on researching and learning and teaching. I have a low value on cooking and driving. <laughs> I haven't cooked since I was 24, and I haven't driven a car in over 30-something years. So I learned that if you do things that are high on your value, your self-worth goes up. If you do things low on your values, your self-worth goes down. And if you do things that are high on your value, you spontaneously act because you're inspired spontaneously to do it. It's uh, intrinsically driven. And if you do something low on your values, you need extrinsic motivation and reward to do it and punishment if you don't do it to get you to do it. So obviously identifying what the hierarchy of one's values are, it dictates how they perceive, decide, and act, and therefore their destiny. And prioritizing your life liberates you. I learned what were the highest priorities for me, which is teach, research, write, and travel the world. Everything else is delegated. I have specialists that take care of everything else. 
I jokingly say, even if I have a girlfriend, I tell her, I said, look, I've delegated George Clooney to take care of lovemaking. <laughs> and would you still love me if, if I delegated that? She said, I'd love you even more. <laughs> so I delegate everything and do only what I'm really inspired to do, which is teach, research, write, and travel the world. So that switch from most people perceiving that I need to live a motivated life to I can live an inspired life and I can discover what is my calling. And then you, by discovering that prioritization of values, can become uh, most effective with how you're using your human energy in this meat suit for the lifetime that you are in it. (laughs) Well, your highest value um, that is most important, highest in priority, Aristotle called the telos. And the telos is the end in mind. And the study of the telos was teleology, the study of meaning and purpose. So the most meaningful, the most purposeful, the most inspiring, the most fulfilling thing a human being can do is to prioritize their life and fill it with the very highest priority thing that's most meaningful. So why do anything else? Why be second? Why not be first? Why not live in the highest priority possible? So finding out what that is. Now, that could be raising a beautiful child. It could be some social cause. It could be fitness. It could be exercise, education. Nobody's right or wrong for their hierarchy of values, but they're unique, and identifying that is liberating. And the second you live by the very highest value, that's your identity revolves around that. Your ontological identity, your teleological purpose, your epistemological pursuit of expertise is around the highest value. So finding that is one of the things I specialize in helping people identify what they're intrinsically called to do. That highest value is also the purpose and the for that moment, and that can evolve. But the purpose is the most efficient and effective pathway to fulfill the greatest amount of voids with the greatest amount of value. And the voids are all the things you're too proud or too humble to admit that you see in the world around you that you're not willing to own. That's why you become yourself to the degree that you own everything. At the level of the essence of the soul, nothing's missing in you. You have fulfillment, pleroma. At the level of the existence, you have things missing. The things that are missing are all the things you've judged in other people that you're too proud or too humble to admit that you own, that you've deflected instead of reflected. And so I'm very inspired by helping people identify what they value most, where they have the most objectivity, the most neutrality, the most reflective awareness, the most presence, and the most empowered state of conscious awareness. That's where we have the most, as, as uh, Hegel said, it's where the dialectic comes and synthesizes where we have the most spiritual pur- pursuit. Is there an overlap? I'm curious what you think about virtue, but in terms of how whatever everybody's highest value might be that they discover in life, what would you say are the qualities that lead to the most well-being to, to the planet? Because I feel like that's going to be the highest expression of ourselves, whether it's teaching or fitness, if we're doing it in the pursuit of service, I feel like we get amplified by the universe. And so I'm curious what you feel like that is. Well, each is individually is, is described. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a mother and your highest value is children and raising a family, you'll be dedicated to raising beautiful children. Uh, Rose Kennedy, her mission statement, I actually had a book given by the Kennedy family to an individual that was given to me, and it had her handwritten mission statement in it. And it said, I dedicate my life to raising a family of world leaders. (laughs) So she was dedicated to being a mother raising family of world leaders. Other people, it may be fitness or exercise or building wealth or building business or serving people socially or whatever. I don't judge what it is. I don't consider any value system right or wrong. Everybody projects onto others what they think is right according to their values, whatever supports it and whatever challenges they think is wrong. But ultimately, that's murky because in the, in the world, there's complete pairs of opposites. 
just like in our body, we have uh, the sympathetic and parasympathetic that play complementary opposites. So two in the human value systems, for every person that's trying to build something, there's somebody trying to undermine that to balance it. There's a law of heuristic escalation. The more you get righteous about yours and proud about your pursuit, an equal and opposite force comes in to keep it balanced, to keep you back into authenticity. Because when you're proud, you're not your th authentic self. When you're shamed, you're not your authentic self. When you find a balance between those, you're authentic. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you are judging somebody and putting them down and putting yourself up and puffing yourself up and looking down and you're too proud to admit what you see in them inside you, that's not your authentic self. And when you're shamed and looking up to somebody and minimizing yourself and too humble to admit what you see in them inside you, again, you're not your authentic self. It's only when you see that whatever you see in them, the seer, the seeing, and the scene are the same, and you have pure reflective awareness, that you have real intimacy, that you own everything you see, and it's you, and nothing's missing in you. And now you have fulfillment loving somebody else. The divine in me honors the divine in you, like namaste. Mic drop moment. I love that because I, I've heard you speak to how when we pedestal somebody up, obviously we're going to minimize ourselves. When we look down, we're going to inflate ourselves. So how in the process of actually integrating that and making that a reality where we catch ourselves when we're admiring somebody or we're feeling superior to somebody, what is the process in real time of integrating that so we can uh, you know, stop uh, living in an illusion? Well... I've been working on that for a while, 51 <laughs> years. Um, the first thing is identify what specific trait, physical trait, or action or inaction do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you admire most or despise most? And really narrow it down. Make sure it's not hearsay. Make sure it's not vague generalities. Make sure it's not something about how you felt, but it's actually their actions. Make sure it's not transcendental because there's no polarization and judgment there. And then once you identify what the trait, action, inaction is, then you go inside yourself and you go, okay, John, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating the same specific trait, action, inaction that you admire to despise in them inside yourself. And where are you when you do it? When are you when you do it? So hold yourself accountably so you activate an episodic memory. And then exactly uh, who you're doing it to and who is perceiving you doing that. So you can lock in with reflective awareness and also transparency where you do it so you can't deny it. When you lock that in and you do it again and again and again until the quantity and the quality of what you see in them, you own 100% with certainty. You have now have reflective awareness and realize that who am I to judge them? I'm doing the same thing. It was uh, Romans 2, 1 that basically said in, in, a, in, a, in the New Testament, it said to beware of judging because the thing you judge in them is you do the same things. And I've been doing that and going through reflective awareness like that for many, many years. And I have yet to find somebody that couldn't find that behavior that they judge. Because we only judge things on the outside that represent parts of the inside that we haven't loved. Can you speak into how it's self-judgment really? Because when... You know, we could bring a couple of examples. If somebody feels like they admire how somebody's generous or how somebody's creative and they don't feel like they see that. So you're saying have the reflective awareness to where you can see where in the past that you have, where and when in time you've demonstrated that same quality. Um, and and that can show you how you do, you do have that within you. Uh, but I feel like when it comes to judgment, it's, a, it's tricky because we're all, it's often happening in an unconscious state. Well, there's, there is no... Judgment without unconsciousness. Right. Can't. If you're fully conscious, there's nothing but love. Mm. You have to be blind and ignorant 
and unconscious of some part of yourself in order to even have a button to be judging. So would you say then all judgment is rooted in self-judgment to a degree if life is a mirror? They're inseparable. We only have resentment on something on the outside that represents something we feel ashamed of on the inside that we've dissociated from and gone into a cover-up called pride in order to not deny it. And then they're the one we're judging and pointing our finger at, got three back at ourselves to make us realize that we're judging ourselves, but we're projecting it onto them with a false attribution bias and a false causality. We blame them for what we're actually feeling. When we finally own that and then find the benefits of what they're doing and the benefits that we've done it and clear our shame, we don't have any resentment to them. I've had people that have been resentful to people, gone in, identified where they've done the same thing to the same degree, then gone in, find out how it served people in the process, and they're, they went over there and hugged the individual when they're done. They didn't even have to go through and find the benefits of the trade because it's just a reflection of themselves. How, how do you navigate when people feel grief in relation to how they have been judgmental or something that they've done? How do you help them collapse that? Well, if they have a fantasy that they're going to be beyond judgment, and they're not going to grow, and they're not going to have judgment, well, then that's their delusion. And anytime you compare your current reality to a fantasy and a delusion, you're going to beat yourself up because you're having an expectation that you're not going to do that. But we all are going to do that because that's what lets us know what we haven't loved, and it gives us another opportunity to love some more. Hmm. So we're going to grow. If we think that we're beyond that and don't have that, then that's another pride that we just got trapped in and we're doing it at that moment. Right. I, I went through the Oxford English Dictionary 39, almost 40 years ago, because uh, I realized that what I was seeing in other people and what I was saying to them and particularly emphasizing was for me as much as them. So I decided to do a preemptive strike by going into the Oxford Dictionary and I went through and I underlined every possible human behavioral trait that I found, 4,628 individual traits. And I went and underlined it, and then I went outside on the margins, and I thought of who is it that I know that is the most extreme example of that behavior? And I wrote their initial. And then I started doing the exercise. Now, John, go to a moment where and when you perceive yourself displaying or demonstrating that trait until I see that it's 100% equal to all those people that I thought were extreme. And I went and owned all 4,628 traits. And I realized that no matter what you say about me, it's true. <laughs> I'm nice, I'm mean, I'm kind, I'm cruel. I'm honest, I'm dishonest, I'm all the above. I'm judging, I'm non-judging. And then I realized that if I, if I meet somebody that has similar values, uh, they'll call me determined and perseverant and focused and dedicated. If I meet somebody with dissimilar values, they'll see me pig-headed, rigid, and, and stuck, and unwilling to, to, to alter the same behavior. So I'm all those based on the perceptions of people around the world. And that's what you're dealing with. You're dealing with all those perceptions. So when you own all those traits, you realize that everybody's just projecting their, their own illusions onto you. And all of them are valued and all of them are useful. There's that quote, I think, from Cooley that says that I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. <laughs> and I feel like we oftentimes live in this hall of mirrors, which is the relative human experience that we come here in this, in this realm of duality to be able to experience the reflection of others. When you kind of zoom out and see the, the reflective nature of the human consciousness in relationship, uh, how do you see that as a process of evolution? Well, as long as we don't dissociate it, it's one thing to dissociate and just observe it, you know, like a transcendental meditation and observe it. But you can also use that as an escape instead of growth. Because instead of actually going in there and owning it all and being part of it, you're just witnessing it. And then you say you're not judging it, but the second you go back into it, you judge it again. So you haven't really accomplished anything except a temporary dissociation. So I'm a firm believer in transcending it by going in there and finding out how it serves. Everything is serving ultimately, or it would have gone extinct. If you look at the way things work, if, they, if it doesn't serve somehow life, it goes extinct. 
So if these behaviors that we may have a moral hypocrisy about, that we may judge, it actually still serves. And my job is to go find it. I'm a believer that there's a hidden order in the in the world, and my job is to find it. That's that's my, you know, when you study uh, chaos theory and you study uh, disorder and order and entropy and negentropy, you'll see that the entropy is basically missing information. Claude Shannon called it missing information. Two Nobel Prize winners got their work on information theory. So whenever we are judging, we're missing information, and we have entropy, and we have disorder, and we're creating an impulse towards something or an instinct away from it, so we're extrinsically driven by this perception. But the second we go in there and find both sides simultaneously and balance the equation, put the yin-yang symbol together and have a Taoist perspective, we are automatically seeing that there was nothing but love. All else was an illusion. And the mind will automatically, if it perceives something that challenges it, it will automatically dissociate, create an anti-memory to counterbalance it, to keep it in equilibrium. And if we have something that's ecstatic, it will create a paranoia in order to come in to balance it out. The brain is constantly looking for homeostasis amongst a perturbed world, and it's constantly trying to uh, make us aware that there is a full expression of love when we're fully awakened. So I'm a... I'm a believer that love is a synthesis and synchronicity of all complementary opposites, and we go and judge and see only part of it instead of the whole, and therefore we have emotional reactions and let our amygdala run our life instead of letting our executive center see things objectively. And that's where we're human beings on a mission instead of a passionate avoidance-seeking mechanism. Hmm. The download is heavy. There is so much to unpack there. I feel it's like the journey of the matured intellect is being able to hold paradox simultaneously. Simultaneously. And the law of polarity, which I love in Hermeticism, speaks to how, and also you refer to many times, how relief and grief, for example, are on the same poles of the same magnet that is love. That's it. And so I would love for you to share a little bit more how paying attention to the polarity and the opposite of something can help you collapse it down into unicity. Well, if you're addicted to pleasure, you're going to be hurt by pain. <laughs> if you're addicted to support, you're going to be hurt by challenge. Anything that you have an infatuation with, the opposite is going to be something you resent. And you're trying to separate the inseparables, divide the indivisibles, label the unlabelables, polarize the unpolarizables, you know, and, and live in this dualistic perspective. And then what you're doing is you're creating a causality of separation instead of an a-causal state of synchronicity. When you see that they're simultaneous, you've liberated yourself. Wilhelm Wundt in 1895 in his book and the Principles of Psychology, who was, a, who was basically the father of experimental psychology along with William James, but he did it in a different area. He basically said that simultaneous contrast liberates and sequential contrast uh, polarizes us and makes us in bondage to our misperceptions. See, what most people do is they get caught in, a, in the law of contrast. And he mo mentioned this. So if you take a beaker of water, and let's say this beaker over here is uh, 40 degrees, it's cold. And another beaker of water that's 72 degrees, tepid. And another beaker of water that's 140 degrees, hot. Um, if you put a thermometer in each one, they give you an objective reading. But if you put your hand in there and you hold it there, you'll go, okay, that's about 40 degrees. Take your hand out, let it normalize again, put it in this one, that's about 72 degrees. Take it out and put it in this one, oh, that's about 140 degrees. You'll, you'll measure it pretty accurately. But if you put your hand into the cold water, 40 degrees, and take it immediately out and stick it into 72, you're going to swear that it's 90 degrees because you now have a subjective bias because of a contrast. And if you stick it in 140 and you now stick it in the 72 right away, you'll think it's 50 degrees. You'll think it's colder than it actually is. So the second you contrast and judge somebody else relative to you, your perspective of yourself just got skewed, and now you exaggerate, minimize yourself, you've lost your, 
thyself. Mm. <laughs> You're no longer thyself. You now distorted yourself. That's why if we compare ourselves to other people and put them on pedestals or pits and don't put them in our heart and have equanimity and equity, we're automatically going to have a skewed view of who we are, and we're going to over— we're going to set goals that are too big and too short a time frame when we puff ourselves up or set two goals goals that are too small and too long a time frame when we beat ourselves up. And each one of those are going to give us feedback to set real goals and real time frames that are real objectives. So mm -hmm. nature is going to force us, even if we do judge, back into our authentic self by the signs and symptoms of our psychology and physiology and sociology and, and our business feedback. It's going to guide us back to the authenticity. Everything is guiding people to maximize their potential because of the law of efficiency. Everything that's going on in life is actually maximizing efficiency, but people aren't aware of it. And so they're basically keeping imposing moral hypocrisies and expectations that are delusive to try to get them to, to live in this ideal fantasy world instead of actually honor the way the magnificence is. So it feels like the difference between responding and reacting is just that. Like, and how, how are you... Do you feel like it is our evolutionary path to close that gap between our subjective perspective and objective reality yeah. to be able to weather, for example, the different water temperatures is an example to how we perceive relationships, how we perceive any any circumstance that's unfolding in our life, to be able to see it fully just for what it is and not distorting it for how we want it to be or how we don't want it to be. Well, our fulfillment is proportional because anytime we exaggerate ourselves and minimize somebody, that's not accurate, that's not accurate. The perturbation that occurs by the seeking and avoiding responses are not allowing us to be stable stable and present and certain and poised and productive and prioritized and fulfilled. So all of those are perturbations that are giving us feedback to let us know we're not seeing things as they are, we're seeing things as we have projected. Some people are familiar with you from your work initially being in the film The Secret, which is interesting. So the law of attraction and how it was kind of distorted and some things I like about the movie and what it opened up for people. Obviously, a lot of other things that I think weren't as accurate representations of how reality really works. What do you feel like the law of attraction truly is, if there is such a thing, and the qualities of being able to consciously create life in the way that you want it? Well, I'm, uh, I've been fascinated by perceptions. I wrote a book on perceptual illusions and how they affected health and wellness back in 1978. And... Uh, Fascinated by it. We have an area of our brain which is called the relay center. It's the thalamus. The thalamus takes in sensory information from uh, spinal input and also from the brainstem. And it passes through this relay station called the pulvinar nuclei, which is the front part of the thalamus. And then it goes into this uh, corona radiata and internal capsule and goes up into the cortex. As it goes up in the cortex, it basically is filtered and gated information that's selected. And that's based on whatever our hierarchy of values are. So let's take a 35-year-old woman that's got three children under the age of five, and let's walk in a mall, and her highest value is those children, and she identifies herself teleologically as a, as a mother. And so she's going to spot in that mall children's education items, children's health items, children's entertainment items, children's clothes, children's uh, you know anything to do with the child. She's going to filter things out. She's going to spot that. Her husband, if she's married— um, let's say he's business-oriented because somebody's going to be working, making money to take care of the kids. And he's now going to walk in that same mall. He's not going to see all that children's stuff. He's going to see a computer store. He's going to see a bookstore. He's going to see a suit store or whatever that helps him build his business. So we filter our reality according to our hierarchy of values. And our thalamus is part of that gating system. We'd be overwhelmed by infinitude if we didn't filter it out and get down to the things that are a priority. 
So the hierarchy of our values dictates our perceptions by prioritizing things and filtering things up to get us. Now, if we live by our very highest value and we know ourself because our identity revolves around it, we have the most efficient filtering and we see the highest probability of synchronicities and things that seem to match our intentions. So the secret behind the secret left out of the secret is don't waste your time pursuing something that's not really truly highest on your value, which is authentic. Mm. That means knowing yourself. So if you waste your time on those lower party things, you're going to think the secret doesn't work. You're going to think that I don't see all these synchronicities. It's, everything's in the way, not on the way. But if you're living by your highest values, you amazingly filter out things and you see the world on the way instead of in the way. Mm. So that's part of it. And then there's no doubt that we have subtle senses that we are – Learning as the decades go on. I mean, I've been studying neurology. I just finished a new textbook on neurology this week, in fact. And um, what's interesting on neurology is we didn't know about certain senses 50 years ago <laughs> when I started putting effort into the study of that. We didn't even know that we had certain subtle senses and, and pheromonic uh, influences and aromatic responses. We didn't know we had quantum entanglements going on inside the brain, it looks like. There's a lot of knowledge about sensory systems that we now know. And I'm sure in another decade, in another decade, another decade, 100 years from now, we'll have even more understanding. So the subtleties of what we can perceive in our environment, the subtleties of our communication systems are getting more profound. And so I'm no doubt that we have a resonation process also by what our innermost dominant thought is. It does become our outermost tangible reality. When we prioritize our motor actions and live by highest priority and prioritize our sensory perceptions and see things, no matter what happens, how it's helping our highest priority, then we are in the flow. And we start to see opportunities and take advantage of opportunities and run into the people, places, things, ideas, and events in our life to help us manifest our innermost dominant thought. So we also have our thoughts. Almost everybody, we did a study back in the 80s. In, I, did, I did a thousand doctor's offices. You know, I was consulting for them back in the 80s. And we would go in there and we'd have the patient files. We go through all their patient files that have been inactive for six months or longer, haven't been in. And we'd pull them out and we'd divvy them up between the staff members. And we'd then read their file, look at their primary complaint, look about their, their family members' names, look at everything and just study their file. 20% within one week would show back up in the office. Consistently. I mean, consistently. Whatever we think about, we didn't tend to have some sort of connection with they so and so ran into them they called and all of a sudden they something happened and they showed back in the office so there's no doubt that there's a resonation going on we, i have my theories about it in quantum in the quantum world i have my theories about how we telecommunicate in that way but some of them are still murky it happens frequent enough to not ignore but not frequent enough to bet money on Mm. But it's it's definitely there. But 20% is a pretty high percentage. And we definitely watched 20%. And we had what they called file day. Every quarter, we'd get a bunch of files out. We'd just focus on it to reestablish a relationship with the clients. And it works in business. It works there. So, And the same thing. We, almost everybody has you know, thought of somebody and they go, oh, they called all of a sudden. You know, you have these synchronicities. In my Breakthrough Experience program, I see this every week. I had people. I, had, I was just in Istanbul yesterday. And on the weekend, this last weekend, I had it in Istanbul. And uh, people said, I just finished this exercise to love this individual and overcome any judgments on them. And I haven't talked to him in 11 years. They just called me. Or so-and-so just, I haven't talked to him and I've we broken up and we're not talking to each other. And then they were now they, they contacted and said, let's get together. So this happens consistently. And it's more than just probability. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, I've studied probabilistics. And 
Yeah. And it's more than probability. I'm excited to dive deeper into those energetic subtleties that you're curious about and that are still maybe a little murky and we can speculate on those. But I think it's really powerful how you just broke that down and kind of taking away this law of attraction from this mystical force that brings you what you want just by thinking about it to the tax brass. No, like I've heard you say that our innermost dominant thought is going to then be our external most tangible reality. And that if we go on that pursuit of clarifying what our values are and how that shapes our selective bias attention, we're going to continue to see what we want to see. And we're going to see more of what we value most and what we're thinking about most. So that just, I think you wrap that up really beautifully uh, because it really becomes an important uh, reminder to guard what you allow in your consciousness, what you allow the impressions of your subconscious mind to accumulate, because then you're going to start to continually to attract more of that. Well, whatever it is out there, I'm a firm believer that there's there's seven questions a person can ask. What is it I would absolutely love to do in life? Uh, how can I get handsome and beautifully paid to do it so my vocation, vacation are the same? What obstacles might I run into and how do I solve them in advance? How can I get handsome and beautifully paid to do it, in other words? And then what are the action steps I can do to make it happen? And what worked and what didn't work today? How do I do it more effectively and efficiently tomorrow? And how did, no matter what happened today, how did it get me one step closer? Those are very profound questions to help you increase the probability of achieving what it, your innermost dominant thought is. That's a great reminder just to pause and go back and write those down for the listeners. Yeah, as well. those are seven good <laughs> questions. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm a firm believer that uh, if you get really clear about what you want, you're going to increase the probability of achieving it. I, I'm sometimes, when I write out objectives, I will spend sometimes hours on that objective, that one paragraph of exactly how I want it. And I have, uh, I have a master planning for life system that I do that I, I'm very concise about the wording. And um, yeah, and I'm amazed at how the people, places, things, ideas, and events surface to make it happen. Mm. I mean, amazingly. Yeah. And some people go, well, that's crazy. I had a gentleman from Stanford University that heard me speak one time in San Francisco, and he says, I'd like to, he flew all the way to Houston just to meet with me. I'd like to help you on your endeavors. And then I told him, here's my master plan book. Uh, you better get to know who, what I'm up to and what I'm committed to that may not be as in in inspiring. You just met me at a one talk. That's just a small piece of who I am. And afterwards, he says, "It's this is not for me. This is this is crazy stuff. You're, you're, you're going to do stuff that I mean that's not not realistic. What's what's the top thing? Well, that's he was. I, I, you know, I told him that I wanted to do enough of a contribution to have a thousand books write about the, what I'm doing. I wanted to write a, so many hundreds of books. I wanted to do these things, and they're happening. They're all manifesting. You know, I've done 300 books, so I'm I'm a firm believer that you can do whatever you set your mind to. But most people don't want to believe that you can do it because they they limit themselves, and then immediately, if they can't see themselves doing it, they'll try to bring you back to their level to to make it comfortable. But you know, to be greatest to be misunderstood," said Emerson. So you just I just say, when, no matter what anybody says to me, I'm winning. I always know when somebody's criticizing, I know somebody's praising. If I'm addicted to the praise, the criticism is there to get me back into equilibrium. So I know that how to how to center that. And um, so it doesn't matter what anybody says. That The world on the outside is not what matters. It's the perception of the world on the outside that matters. For those that are listening right now, there's going to be some individuals that feel the calling to be the very best that they can in their particular field, whether it's basketball or swimming or it's business or it's writing. What do you feel like is the, I mean, we kind of just spoke into it, but the qualities of what really allows those individuals, because they're so inspired, that's going to enable them into such massive action to actually be able to attain being the top in their field in the world. Well, you you define what it is you want to be master at. Mine's in human behavior. I want to have the broadest, most in-depth knowledge on the planet ever in history on that field. 
And so I've devoured 30,000 books just for that objective. <laughs> but the purpose of that is because I wanted to find the one thing, as Gary Keller says, the one thing that I wanted to master. And mine happens to be the teaching and researching of human behavior. Now, that may not be of interest to anybody else, but it doesn't matter to me. This is what inspires me. So I go and focus on what inspires me. What do you think about the shift? Because I felt into this as well. Earlier on in my journey, I've kind of asked, what do I want from life? And then I feel like it's evolved more and more over the years to what does life want of me? And so what do you feel like? Because you, as if teaching is your highest value, in some ways, do you attribute that to conditioning? Do you attribute that to a deeper soul energy that was... Uh, that like life is being able to express itself most effectively through you and your numerology and biology and how you were set up. I'm curious how you think our values kind of choose us in a way. Well, uh, a little amoeba has endocytosis for food and exocytosis for waste. It's seeking and avoiding. So in a sense, it has a judgment. This is good. This is bad. This is seek. This is avoid. When multicellular systems developed, uh, colonies and sponges and cylinders and things, and then uh, you started getting more tissues and organs and eventually embryological development of a human. All of those single cells from the zygote through differentiation are basically developing and they're seeking an avoiding mechanism. So there's an inherent avoidance and seeking value support challenging system right from the beginning. So you're born with it. Then you're accumulating things as you go along based on a bit of conditions that you subordinate to. And you don't take on everybody's. If you don't subordinate to somebody, you don't take in their values. If you subordinate, you project your values. So you're gathering things in the environment based on who you subordinate to and who you give in to and who you look up to and you take in information. So those are accumulating. In my particular situation, it was a combination. I was born with a arm and leg deformity pushed in and I was had to wear braces until I was four, so I wanted to be free. I wanted to be out of the braces. I was also had a speech impediment, so a year and a half I was going to a speech pathologist, and I've had, by the time I was in kindergarten, first grade, I was told I would never be able to read or write or communicate and never mouth thing, never go very far in life. So I had a void with learning. And then I, I, when I got out of my braces, I just wanted to run, and I wanted to do some sort of sport. So I excelled in, in baseball and then also in surfing. And so I just, I eventually left home when I was 13 years old. 14, I hitchhiked to California. 15, I made it to Hawaii, and I rode big waves. I nearly died at 17. And then I met this teacher, Paul C. Bragg, who one night and one hour inspired me and made me believe that I could overcome my learning problems and someday become intelligent enough to read and write and speak. And so that was a void that became a realization that maybe I could overcome that. I, had to, I was convinced I could do it. And then with the help of my uh, learning to go and read a dictionary, I memorized 30 words a day in a dictionary until the dictionary was memorized. And I did 20,000 words by memorizing words after day that my mom helped me with. I would eventually overcome my, my learning processes, and I learned how to speak by practicing speaking. You learn to play the flute by playing the flute. And I just all of a sudden just kept doing it. And since I was 18, I've been doing everything I can to, to travel the world and to speak. So... Those are all the voids that led to the value that I have that is inspires me today. That brings tears to my eyes. Get to do it every day. Yeah, this is what I this is what I love doing. You know? Yeah, me too. This I'm, is, this is I'm, it. I'm right there with you. Yeah, I can do this 12, 12, uh, 12 <laughs> days a week. It's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of days, um, but anything's possible in the quantum world. So, um, yeah, it, it's I feel the gratitude and the emotion that comes up when you're you're sharing your story, and it feels like 
whatever people believe karmically or energetically, like life gives us challenges that then become the way into us living a most purpose-driven life. Yeah. Well, everything is a feedback system. And, and, and a challenge is perceptual anyway. I've had people that thought they had challenges. I, can I share a story? Please. So I had this, this guy, and this is just about a year and a half ago. Yeah, something like that, a year and a half. He's driving down the highway in South Africa. He owns a major company, very wealthy guy. And he's driving his fancy car. And four cars come up around him, stop him on the freeway, get out, bang out his window with guns and machine guns, pulled him out, put a thing over his head, stuck him in a trunk and drove off, left his car on the highway. Uh, said that uh, he needed to come up with a large sum of money, millions of dollars in order to see his family alive and him alive. So he had a, a ransom. And uh, so he finally raised the money to get that because he resisted, got beaten a bit, family threatened, finally got released and had to walk a long way and finally make it back home and gave him a large sum of money. And I, I, um, he'd been going to some therapist for a while, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder they gave it. All those are titles and labels that people, because they don't know what they're doing most of the case. So I basically said, I asked him a simple question. So go to the moment when you were traumatized and you were challenged. Well, the moment they came and knocked out the window, I said, okay. And then they put in the trunk. I said, great, go to that moment. I said, what did you experience? Go to that moment and what did you actually, let's look at your senses and all your modalities, submodality distinctions. Let's look at the senses. Well, I was in a fumed back, back trunk. I was constrained. I was had to barely breathe and that smelled terrible. And um, I didn't know if I was going to live and I felt tightened and I couldn't move and I wanted to urinate and defecate and I couldn't do anything. And I was just trapped there for five and a half hours. I said, great. So go to the actual moment, one by moment, the first moment that happens. Your mind will never have trauma or tragedy or turmoil or terrible or torture without dissociating in a freeze response and creating ecstasy and utopia and euphoria and this other thing, excitement, elation. So at that moment, in order to balance out the brain for homeostasis, the EI ratio comes to balance. How did, what was in the mind at that moment? So go to that moment, let's go and let's find out what the mind did. And it dissociated and he was running through a field holding his children and wife's hands, fresh air, butterflies, free, liberated. Every psychological iconic symbol that he had accumulated from his life that was the opposite of what he was doing, his brain brought in as an anti-memory simultaneously to liberate him from this so he could integrate the pairs of opposites so he could have a moment of love, even in that moment. Mm. So in that moment, he thought was trauma. In that moment, I brought him to a tear of gratitude. He goes, wow. That was the moment I made a decision that I really loved my wife and kids. I've been so focused on my business, so dramatically you know, intense on my business. I've neglected my wife, haven't put focus on her, didn't hardly see the kids. At that moment, I realized that I had been sitting on the edge and my wife was almost ready for a divorce. I was having hypertension and I was basically not taking care of my health. I'd gained weight because I was eating crap. And, I, and, I, and at that moment, I got to see how much they were meant to me, and it brought me a tear of gratitude the moment I saw that. I said, okay, and let's go frame by frame by frame. I took frame by frame in the stream of consciousness. I took frame by frame by frame and found out the opposite of whatever he was perceiving. When he was through, he, he goes, I didn't have torture. I had torture and ecstasy, trauma and elation. Both of them were there simultaneously. I said, Exactly. 
Your mind has systems of homeostasis that most people don't realize. They're unconscious of the other side, and they label it that, and they think it's a trauma, and they change it, and they run the story and become victim of history instead of master of destiny. So at that moment, what was the benefits of that now? He says, I got my family back. He cried. I got to know I love my children like I've never loved before. During the time I was away from my office, my team, which I've been trying to push uphill to try to take command, which I kept interfering with, I got out of the way. They rose the occasion. And during that time, my business made more money than the ransom. And now my business is running itself. I have part-time with my family. I'm going places, doing things with them. And my business is making me more income. If it hadn't have been for that experience— I wouldn't have got those things. I would have been probably divorced, undermined the thing, had an absolute crazy time with, the, with my company dividing it up. This was actually a gift. I said, exactly. I said, can you see you were unconsciously sensing intuitively that they were, you were on the edge? He goes, I was. He says, I got my health back. I've lost a bunch of weight because that happened. I'm now doing yoga and meditation. I'm now with my wife. We're, we're like peas in a pod. I said, how much would you have paid to have that? He says, more. <laughs> Could you have gotten that with a consultant otherwise? No. So this is one of the greatest consultants you ever had. And they go, yes. And he says, I feel like I want to go and find those guys and thank them. I said, now you're seeing things as they are, not as society has labeled. Damn. Because moral hypocrisies tend to impose fantasy idealisms about how we're supposed to be one-sided. You know, we're, but we don't need to get rid of any part of ourselves to love ourselves. But we're trying to get rid of the side that we think is the shadow side. But the shadow is just as essential as the other. And we, we, I'm trying to teach people how to love their wholeness and, and realize that you're all things. You know, you're a hero and a villain and a saint and a sinner and a, uh, all polarities woven together. And, and that's what love is. It's a synthesis, synchronous of all possible behavioral experiences. And I want people to understand that, to help them empower their life. Because as long as they're trying to get rid of some part of themselves, that's going to be the thing that's going to undermine it. And the very thing that they're going to point their finger at other people to push their buttons to keep them playing small. Wow. That was, that was so powerful. And I can, I can just feel all the listeners right now relating to their own trauma or challenges and how they could feel into that and go through that same method and be able to see yeah. how it was actually a gift. Don't, don't, don't let some psychobabble get, get in the way of your, your, your power. I had a young boy. <laughs> this boy is, is told by his therapist and his counselor and his teacher and his mother um, and all the specialists and things like that that he's, because he was an adopted child and because he was sort of an orphan for a while and his you know, abandoned, and all, they put all these labels on that. And they said, well, the reason why he's having problems is because of this, and they had a dysfunctional family and all that. So I said, that's so trivial. It's so dark age. I said, to the, I said, can I have the, your, your young boy here? And I said, yeah. I said, you know how to use the internet? Yep. You know how to get on the phone and look stuff up? Yep. I said, let's go look something up together. I look on there. I said, go look up the celebrities, the people who have made a massive difference in the world that start out as orphans, like Sir Isaac Newton. His father died when he was born. His mother left him for a while. He was, he was left in an apothecary place with this guy to, to, and, and raised that way. So he didn't have a father, and he didn't really have a mother for a long period of time. And Sir Isaac Newton was born, and Principia was done, one of the greatest scientific treatises on gravitational forces. So, but I went through there, and we found 700 celebrities. And I, then I said, look up some of these guys and gals. And see, I said, you're in this category. 
<laughs> and he completely shifted from being a victim of history to a master of destiny, he just shifted. Wow. He said, I am special. I've been gifted with an exact starting point that I needed to do something amazing like these people. So, you know, we, we can be victims of history or master of destiny. I'm a firm believer when people come to my program and they come to the Breakthrough Experience and they want to run their story, I stop them in the story, stop the story, let's reframe it. I guarantee you when their story's over this weekend, you're not going to have that original story. It's over with because it's bull. It's all bull. It's just that we, we've been caught in moral hypocrisies. There's a great little video online that's uh, by a priest, and he basically says that, uh, you know, that religion's in the control business. It's in the guilt-producing control business by creating a moral hypocrisy that some people are supposed to live by, but nobody can. Hmm. And they're trying to be a one-sided individual. Oh, get rid of the negativity and only be positive. Get rid of the, the war and get only peace. But the Global Peace Index, it's monitoring global peace and war all around the planet. If you look at it very carefully, it's always balanced. But people live in a fantasy they're going to get a one-sided world. And that addiction to one side makes the other side the subdiction, and they're splitting themselves apart, trying to get, as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So our passionate pursuit of a one-sided world is a source of our suffering, and the moral hypocrisies breed it, and that's a way that political and theological systems can control people. So they have control and power. And if you don't empower your life, you're going to be overpowered by the external world. So I'm, I'm interested in helping people reclaim their, their integration of opposites and own all parts of themselves and not try to get rid of any part of themselves and love all of it. Because if you do, you can be yourself. <laughs> you can't be yourself if you're trying to get rid of half of yourself. Yeah, embracing the full spectrum. What you, what you just shared to me feels like the epitome of like the ultimate expression of love and of course still making space for the humanity in us and the the suffering that is our relative experience in the moments of the trauma, of course. But then when it's decades removed, years removed, and even you can go to moments removed and, and where it happens in real time. Yeah, but, do, but even the, you know, they, they say that... Uh, if you the wisdom of the ages without the aging process is what I'm interested in. I'm, yeah. I'm not interested in entropy and having causality and aging totally. process. Uh, when people, I had a, a lady that was in a, in one of my programs in Houston, and she was on the phone with her father, and um, it was during a break in one of my seminars, and all of a sudden the father shot himself, killed himself. We heard the gun go off, that just shocked everybody. She just sat there and turned white, and just started, just couldn't even move. Whoa. And she then finally said, my father just shot himself. And the whole room is looking at me, what do we do? I said, bring her up here. There's a process we do on how to deal with grief. Let's take care of it. This is a, a fresh opportunity to do this. And people say, well, doesn't she need to mourn? I said, absolutely not. Whoa. <laughs> I said, the only reason people mourn is because they don't know. They don't know how to process. Mm -hmm. And we were doing it. People only grieve the loss of the parts they were infatuated with. They never grieve the loss of the parts they resented. When if you I've done five thousand death processes and grief processes, and when somebody comes in and says, well, "I'm grieving the loss of somebody," I said, "Yeah, let's make a list of what you're grieving the loss of." It's always the smiles, their their conversations, their hugs, their cooking, their sense of humor, you know, all the things that supported your values. You, they don't say, "I'm missing their farts," "I'm missing their <laughs> screaming," "I'm missing their hair in the sink." I miss. They don't miss that. They only miss the things that supported their values that made dopamine and oxytocin and vasopressin and the encephalendorphins and dendorphins. So the second you make them aware of the other side and balance the equation, 
then they see the whole person, and then you find out what's the downside of that because every trait you admire also has a downside. You meet this guy and you think he's, oh, he's highly intelligent or something, but then you find out he's argumentative, he knows it all, he doesn't listen. There's downsides. He's very good looking, but now when you're making love with him, he's looking at himself in the mirror <laughs> and, and he thinks he's you know a, a stud or something like that and all the girls are doing it. He's looking at them distracted and he's got plenty of girlfriends. Everything has two sides. And so if you choose to be addicted to a fantasy and hold on to it, it's your fantasy that's being broken. And that's what your grief is. Mm -hmm. And so when you actually love somebody for both sides, they become present and you feel there and you're graced with them and they're not gone. And I can prove that. I've done that in settings in Christ Church earthquake. I've done that in, in the Ishinomaki tsunami. I did that in another earthquake in Japan. I've done that at uh, Keio University. They did research and they, we showed this. I mean, I've been doing this for since 1976. I started working on this, and I am certain that that can be dissolved. And people don't have to have grief. Nobody has to have grief more than three hours on this planet. Even right, right now, I'm, I'm working right now in Palestinian and, and Israeli people. They're contacting, and I'm showing them how to dissolve the grief of the loss of loved ones and stuff like that. And people don't know that's possible. They're so used to the program that you, do, you grieve over the loss. But I first, in 1976, when I was in El Salvador, surfing in El Salvador, I saw a celebration of 300 people celebrating the death of the mayor. And I went, when in, in Greece, they wear black for two years and they mourn. Over here, they're celebrating and they go in the freeing of the spirit and they're having a party. And I thought, hmm, this is a social construct. So I've started working on what exactly is this grief and relief polarity back in 76. Well, By 1984, I had a, a model for that and it's been working ever since. It's very powerful. Yeah, there's so much there. What you, one thing that you said that really stuck out is that grief is our fantasy being broken. Yeah. And I think that's- It's a withdrawal symptom from a, a internal drugs. Yeah. And it can be <laughs> it can be sad to realize that, especially in relationships and romantic partnerships, we're often, what we think is love is infatuation, infatuation. and that we're, we're in love with uh, the perception that we have of somebody and we're not actually relating the to fantasy. them as a being. Yeah. Most people are having affairs with a fantasy and then punishing an individual and then wonder why they want to have an affair because they want to be loved for who they are. Hmm. <laughs> a lot of fantasies out there. And some people will start out with the fantasies and gradually work their way to finally love somebody if they're smart. Yeah. But if they're not, they just go off to the next fantasy and then, then think that all men are this way or all women are this way instead of actually realizing that it's their delusion that they're being smacked. They're getting, you know, nature is basically breaking fantasies. All fantasies are designed to be broken. And you, you think they're broken hearts, they're not, they're broken fantasies. We're so programmed to think that love is infatuation. And I'm just curious for you, is it just a process of, of rewiring to be able to, whenever you come into relation with another being, to have it be an expression of love and not trying to extract love, essentially? <laughs> I was just with two girls having dinner the other night. Um, well, girls, they're, I, I'm 69 years old, so girls are now <laughs> 50s. Yeah. <laughs> but girls. And, uh, <laughs> and so... It's interesting. Um, they were having a boyfriend issue. You look great for 69, by yeah. the way. Holy shit. Oh, yeah, 69. That's my best year. I think 69 is the best year. <laughs> so, so anyway, so this, um, the, these two girls are there, and they're talking about their boyfriends and how they're you know, brokenhearted about these boyfriends, and yet they're infatuated and stuff. And I, I said, let's go to a moment when you're infatuated and you're admiring some trait. What specific trait, action, inaction do you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you admire most? Good. Okay, got it. At that moment... You got the vision. Now, go to a moment when they're just opposite of that. Because when you're looking for a mate, 
you're not going to get a one-sided mate. You're going to get nice and mean and kind and cruel and positive and negative and support and challenge and honest and dishonest and loyal and betrayal. You're going to get them all. If you think you're going to get one and then you're not ready for the other, then you're immature and you're not really, you're searching for a fantasy instead of a true objective that's love. So I basically showed her, go to the moment when he does this, the opposite. And she goes, okay, go the next moment that did this. We calm down their infatuation because when she's infatuated, she's going to start sacrificing what's most important to her in order to be with him for fear of loss. Because whatever you infatuate, you fear the loss of whatever you resent, you fear the gain of. And you're living in fear of your own creation. So if you go in there and find out where he's the other side, you calm down the infatuation, you reclaim your power, you start allowing yourself to have a fair exchange, and a sustainable fair exchange is what people want in a relationship. So I made them crack their fantasy on the spot, and they go, I'm not so infatuated with him. I said, I know. She goes, and I'm not frightened of losing him. I know. Now you're able to be objective when you're in this relationship because you were sacrificing yourself. So, yeah, I, was, I, I, I mean, I basically gave in to him on a whole bunch of things that I really didn't want to do. And I said, exactly, because you're infatuated. And the infatuation isn't him. It's the fantasy you made him. Mm. He's, he's both of those. Mm. But you're blind. You're unconscious of the downside when you're infatuated. You're unconscious of the upside when you're resentful. Again, just so powerful. So much to reflect on there. I, I'm paraphrasing, but I heard Ram Dass once say something to the lines of, self-righteousness is one of the last gates to the inner heaven. And I feel like we tend to cling on to our own inadequacies and we feel a sense of righteousness around them. And so I'm curious what you feel about self-righteousness, this inner urge to be right and how you relate to that. Well, it's an amygdala response. The amygdala wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure. So it, avoid, it wants to avoid predator and seek prey. So anything that challenges its values, it wants to avoid. Anything that it supports its values, it wants to seek. So it has the fear of loss of pride. That's why I cover our face if we do something shameful. And we, you know, cover our face and show off our face if we were proud. So it's the amygdala that's addicted to pride and subdicted from shame. And it's the amygdala that's addicted to fantasies and subdicted from nightmares. So it's our amygdala that traps us and because we're ungoverned. But the forebrain, whenever we live by our highest priorities, the blood glucose and oxygen goes into the forebrain, activates the medial prefrontal cortex. That area of the brain has little nerve fibers that go down into the amygdala, the nucleus accumbens and the habenula. And basically with glutamate and GABA, they go in there and neutralize the impulses and instincts since we're self-governed and we're not impulsive, searching for a fantasy and, you know, instinctual to avoid a, a pain. So if we live by priority, we have less probability of pride and shame. We're more humble. We, we understand both sides. We're, we realize we're a hero and villain. We're not denying ourselves. We have more reflective awareness. I, when I went through the dictionary many years ago, almost 40 years ago, and I saw that I had all the above, I go, so who am I to rise above or below? <laughs> I've got it all. Hmm. And that's fulfillment. But our society wants you to get rid of half of it. You're supposed to be nice, not mean, kind, not cruel. Your grandmother goes along and tells you as a child, right? Now, be nice. Don't be mean. Be kind. Don't be cruel. Be positive. Don't be negative. Be generous. Don't be stingy. And then she goes and beats grandpa up five seconds later <laughs> and says, where's the money? <laughs> you know, it's hypocrisy. So the moral hypocrisies are what most people are trapped by. And they usually come from politicians and theological background. Because if you're not governing yourself psychologically and physiologically and having autotelia, which is an internal feedback system, realizing that everything that's going on in your physiology and psychology is teaching you your mission in life and having a homeostatic focus, you're going to be governed by the external world. Anything that's not governed from within gets governed from without. Mm. So anytime you're basically in judging somebody, you're going to be outside governed 
politics and religion going to run you. Yeah. That's mass media, social media, instead of master media. The master media is the perennial philosophy that stood the test of time, which is symmetry, proportion, and order, and perfect, elegant mathematical expression of the perfect balance of life. Yeah, I want to go into negentropy in a second here. Uh, but I, I do want to touch on one thing, which is when we were talking about this in the human experience, how we relate with other, other individuals, and then we also look on the macro scale. It's interesting that you brought up the peace index, that that's roughly been balanced because it feels definitely, especially if you tune in online, like it's World War Three is upon us. Things are getting extremely heated and understandably so. What do you feel about as awakening and the awareness on this planet is growing, the light of the awareness is growing, so too does the opportunity for the shadow that that casts. And so it kind of has to grow on both poles, right? Um, So how do you see that balance? A particle of light has no real antiparticle other than light. It's the particle and antiparticles. As Paul Dirac in his Principles of Economics in 1947, he basically described that if you take a a photon and put it in a cloud chamber, you get a positron electron. The world of pairs of opposites is in the, the fermion world, not the boson world, as they say in physics. So in that area, that's where the polarities are. So peace and war, uh, there's external peace and war, and then there's internal peace. Internal peace is when you embrace both external peace and war, when you see that there, there's an order to them. See, right now, you had recently you had, uh, I think, uh, 10,000 or 20,000 rabbis sitting at the Wailing Wall all joined together in the biggest thing, all working towards peace. And there's groups of people over the world, you know, meditating on peace around the world as war is going on. But if you look, if you really look carefully, you're going to see peace and war are always balanced. And the Global Peace Index measures 99.7% out of 23 parameters and every 99.7% of the population is governed by 23 parameters that are determined whether there's peace and war in a country. And it measures it. And every year it reports what's going on. And it's always fluctuating around a mean, a perfect balance, a balance of peace and war. And if you go to look at Europe in the last 1,000 years, there's a video online, you can go on, and it shows the border walls changing through Europe over the last 1,000 years. It's You can get one on different parts of the world, but just the European one. And you'll show that there's about 5,000 different little wars going on during that time and 1,000 of them. There's wars going on and peace and war going on all times. You have a sympathetic nervous system for con- for for breaking things down, catabolism. You've got a parasympathetic for building things up, anabolism. Build and destroy. We're designed for both, and maximum growth and development occurs at the border of it. If we get anabolism, when we get support, we become juvenile dependent. Imagine if you give somebody support, 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 and they have no accountabilities, no responsibilities, no challenges. They become juvenile dependent, and they're not ready to handle life. And what happens is they have gluttony, and they overeat, and they you know they, they get parasympathetic over, overload. And if you get sympathetic, you get, you know, the parasympathetic is the predator that's now attacking. You break things down, you get eaten, you get emaciated, starved. You, you need both. And maximum growth occurs at the border of support and challenge, the peace and war. So love is the synthesis of that. That's why the person you love, if you look at it, sometimes you think they're killing you and sometimes you think they're saving your life. <laughs> so they're building you up and baiting you up. If you come home cocky, they're going to bring you down. If you come home humble, they're going to lift you up. They're going to do whatever it takes to keep you authentic. And everything on the planet is teaching people how to be authentic. When a culture gets proud and thinks it's superior, it gets nailed. When it goes down, it gets humbled, it gets lifted up. And right now you're seeing global dynamics escalating on showing peace and war on ever greater scales. Mm. So so we, we, we're going to have peace and war going on regardless and in our own life. I was speaking at a peace conference in Austria, and there were 200 leaders there. And I asked um, this question. This is a peace conference. Everybody's living in a fantasy of one side. 
And I basically said, I said, um, how many of you here at this peace conference? And there's, there's media there, the Dalai Lama's there, there's a lot of interesting characters there. And I said, how many of you have moments of inner peace? All put their hand up peacefully. And the whole room had their hand up. I said, how many of you have moments of inner turmoil and conflict? And people were looking around to see if that was okay to do that in a social setting. Okay, mm -hmm. social pressure. <laughs> and they kind of was like this. And I said, I certainly do. And the second I did that, people start putting up and then the whole room put up. I said, so you have moments of calm and moments of turmoil? They go, yes. I said, okay, isn't that true? Yes. Can you admit that? You're living in a fantasy here because we're a bunch of people trying to promote this one-sided world and, you're, and this is a conference so you don't want to show them that you have conflict? Is that what it is? It's a facade right now? You're repressing a part and suppressing it? Yeah. I said, now, when you get married and you find your mate— you get total fine, finally get total peace, don't you? And of course they start laughing and they go, but you have moments of peace and then moments of turmoil. I said, how many of you have a mate and have moments of peace and moments of turmoil? And they all go, um, yes. I said, when you have moments of peace, you sometimes go humpy pumpy and you end up having a child. And when you have a child, would you agree you have total peace then? <laughs> and everybody started laughing and go, no. I said, no, you have moments of calm and moments of turmoil, moments of peace, moments of of inner conflict and challenge and agreements and disagreements. I said, good. Now, when you get with your family and your sister's or brother's family at a family reunion, is there total peace? No. You have a complementary opposite values in a family. The summation of all the values in a family cancel each other. So you have a brother or sister that's like your antiparticle. I said, and they have a different value in what you think is important. They don't think is important. They think it's silly. And so these are all pairs of opposites. I said, now can you see there's both times of calm and times of turmoil in the family. And they go, yes. And at work, you have times of calm and times of turmoil and cliques and groups that have support and challenge. Yes. Where's world peace supposed to happen? Well, come on, get real. It's necessary for us to grow and have both support and challenge on ever greater scales. And the people that have internal conflict are the ones that want outer peace. And the people that have internal peace like to stir up things and be tricksters to people. They like to joke and, and stir things up. So these are two pairs of the human nature, why we have a sympathetic and parasympathetic, why we have mitosis and apoptosis, why we have anabolic and catabolic, why we have reduction and oxidation. All pairs of opposites are necessary. And the synthesis of that is what love is. And love demands transformation in order for us to evolve in a world that's transforming in an astronomical environment as we go around the Milky Way. We must have build and destroy peace and war mechanisms in order to evolve and that's what evolving is. Evolution is transformative, not one-sided. It can't have build without destroy. Mm. You can't have a building built without destroying some part of nature in order to build that building. So yeah. re renovation and, and rejuvenation and innovation all come from a build and destroy mechanism. It feels like uh, this perspective that we've been exploring is a incredibly liberating and it can be held simultaneously while honoring the suffering of uh somebody's experience right it can well it can the suffering both. The, the suffering is is the inability to see both sides simultaneously you know i, I have people that have been uh, gone through all kind of things like the guy in the, the the trauma or whatever person that's been beaten or whatever i take them and i go into that moment i had a lady in london who was 16 years old uh, well, she was 19 when I met her, but she was traumatized at 16. She's standing on a corner with four of her friends, and um, one of them was a boy that she kind of had a crush on, and the other just friends. 
and there and it's on a, a kind of a, a sidewalk where there's a little bit of a knoll and then it goes down to the street there's a there's a curb there and they're smoking pot and they're just sitting there and they're teenagers 16 years old doing you know getting high or whatever and all of a sudden a car comes up and a guy rolls down a window and he says we're look we're lost can you help us find the street so the girl walks down this knoll down and when the, she gets down close, she gets really close. Can you say that again? And he grabs her, opens up the door and grabs her and tries to pull her in the thing. The tall guy that she had a crush on reached and lunged forward and grabbed her legs. And they were dragged literally down the street. And finally, they let go of her and she scraped on the, high, on the sidewalk. And I said, so she's traumatized. She's got three years of anxiety disorder, taking medication, put a label on it, victim of history, trauma. I said, good, go to that moment. When you have that, what did you perceive? I was being held down. Good. At that exact moment, who was trying to lift you up? The boy that I had a crush on. Okay, good. And they were yelling and screaming at you and pulling you, forcing you and constraining you. Yeah. Who's trying to set you free? My friends and my boyfriend. I went in and put the pair of opposites in her perception and balance and put them until each moment got a tear of gratitude, which is a moment of authenticity. When you have a eureka... A moment of aha, the gamma synchronicities in the brain fire up and there's a synchronicity that goes on in the brain. It's a balance of the autonomics, it's an autonomic regulation, and it's a sign of authenticity, knowing yourself. And I basically went through each of those frames, just like I did the guy that was traumatized supposedly by this uh, attack. And when she got through, she was not traumatized, she didn't have a label. She realized that she had an unconscious motive to get the guy she wanted, and she got it, and these people helped her get her goal. <laughs> and she realized that, and she wasn't even angry at him now because she's realized that she got her objective. That guy stayed the entire night, right, took her to the hospital, was there for her, went home with her, stayed there at the house, made sure she was safe. They've been together and they haven't been apart since that time for three years. And she goes, I got my boyfriend. <laughs> mm. So she, she, she started out that that was trauma. Everybody labeled it trauma. Everybody labeled that's a challenging, terrible event. No, it's an event. It's an event. And if you buy into the event and put a label on it, you'll be trapped as a victim of history instead of a master of destiny. I can ask new sets of questions. The quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you ask. If you ask new sets of questions, I can take that same event, transform it into something you're grateful for and get on with your life. Mm. Master of destiny. So I don't want to label something suffering... If you look at the word passion, it comes from pati or passio, and it's a Latin term, and it means to suffer, right? Most people don't realize it, so find your passion, get passionate, have compassion. What it means is to have suffering and have suffer with somebody. But the only people that suffer with somebody are people who have also been wounded that haven't neutralized and balanced their own experience. So they're sympathizing with the person. They go, oh, I understand because I'm still suffering. But that's not masterful life. Going in there and finding out the order to it and liberating yourself from it and finding how it's a moment of love and then helping people objectively come to reason in their, in their own experience is transforming the suffering and helping people actually get on and be fulfilled. Hmm. And that's why Emerson said in one of his quotes and says, I, I like to hit them with rough electric shocks and break their delusion of suffering and help them see the magnificent, the hidden order that's in the apparent chaos. Beautiful. What I got from that is, and I would love to hear if you agree, that suffering is our inability to perceive the balance of opposites. That's it, at the same time. And that's what the brain is doing. The brain, we, we're, we've been taught so much misinformation. It's not that we don't know so much, we know so much that isn't so. Paul Dirac said that. 
And that started me on a new journey back way back when I was 18. What exactly is the hidden order in our apparent chaos? Mm-hmm. You know, Einstein did a great thing and Leibniz did something amazing. Uh, he had uh, 20 of his students uh, in his class. And he said, now, here's a, a, a piece of paper. I want you to write 20 random dots on it. Just 20 random dots, but know the sequence of the dots. So put them in sequence and make them as random as you can. And then he hand, turned in the piece of paper and he put a Cartesian grid on an X and Y axis on it. And then he looked at all the dots and the sequence of it and he wrote a formula, the function of X ver- relative to Y, and then handed it back and let him chart out the thing and they came up with that sequence. And they go, how did you take our random event and found a hidden order? And he says, well, I'm a mathematician, that's my job. That really stuck in my brain at 18 years old, reading his book on Discourse on Metaphysics. Then I started to look at Einstein's, uh, his work on Brownian movement. And if you take ditch water and you find this little debris in it, it moves around in these Brownian movements, these random movements. And if you only get it down and filter it out and you only have one movement, you can actually trace that movement, figure it out. You put two in there, it's harder to discern, but you can trace it out. But there's factorials. When you have two, you have, it's two times more complex. You have three particles, you have six times complex. Four, it's 24 times complex. Five, it's 120 times complex. Six, it's got 720 times complex by factorials. So the mathematical idea of entropy is a mathematical progression. So the complexity is so overwhelming that most of our algorithms don't know how to do it. But Stephen Wolfram, and the mathematician, said that it's the boundary of our comprehension that's labeling something entropic. Hmm. and labeling it. And actually, there may be neg entropy, but we call it entropy because we don't know the algorithms yet. But we look back in the last 60 years, since I've been doing this, 51 years in studying, the number of algorithms have taken things that we once thought were random are no longer random. Hmm. And so in other 10 years and 20 years and 100 years, things we think are random may not be random. And my mission has been how to find the hidden order in the apparent chaos since I was 18. So 51 years of research on that. So let's dive a little bit deeper here since we're, we're here. There is the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy, that across the arrow of time, things will continually progress into more and more chaos. And the alternative, syntropy or negentropy, is going to be the arrow of time going backwards from future to past. And so how do you see that there is a an intelligence, you can perceive it that way, and there's an intelligent mind in all things that is orchestrating not just from order to chaos, but chaos to order, because obviously we'll, we're all here and... It took a lot of order and intelligence to get to this point. Well, Fontapi, Luigi Fontapi talked about this many decades ago. He believed that there was a balance of those and that we just don't see it. And uh, when they first started to come up with entropy back in Clausius and in thermodynamics, uh, the second law, they thought that life was negentropic. You know, Urban Schrodinger in 1935 wrote a book on that, on what is life. It's negentropic. It's the opposite of entropy. But... They assumed that we were going negentropy temporarily in a system run by the sun that we're getting energy from, but the sun is going through entropy. So therefore, the overall thing is going through entropy, but we tend to be far from equilibrium thermodynamics and going temporarily into negentropy. So they just ruled it out and said, it's still entropy. That's the ruling law. But then they started to find out that the solar system had order. (laughs) And they said, well, where's that coming from? Well, that comes from the galaxy. Well, then the galaxy, they found out, had hidden order in it. They were self-organizing systems. So then where is that coming from? Well, that comes from the galaxy clusters and the super galaxy clusters. Okay, where does that come from? Well, that comes from the Big Bang. Okay, where does the Big Bang come from? Well, there was just order. And it runs out of a little, it kind of dead ends. 
and we don't, we, it's a mystery we don't understand. We don't know the origin of it because there's something that has no time, right? That's the theory anyway. But this is a cop-out. And now, as you saw, two and a half weeks ago, they announced a new law. They just acknowledged a new law in biology. Now it's basically challenging entropy, just two weeks ago. Mm. So I've never been satisfied with entropy. I do not believe that that's the final story. And Wolfram also says it's basically computational boundaries. And it's our computational boundaries that's keeping us in the belief that there's entropy. And we are basically in a mechanistic, materialistic, basically physicalist view, uh, a reductionistic view that's making us think that. We're afraid of the other because it's, it's almost teleological. And teleology, because it's been associated with pseudo-religion, has been a negation from science because we have to make it empirical. But empirical has all kind of illusions. There's over 180 biases that affect empirical studies, but we still have this uh, bias towards that, the empirical bias. So we use that. We assume that's it, and that's the best we got. Uh, but— I don't think that's the full answer. And I am feel certain that in another century, we'll have even more, uh, a higher boundary where we are on computation and we'll see hidden order in more and more of the chaos. So I'm a firm believer that in, as the centuries go on, that law will be eventually kind of changed mm. and modified into a balance of entropy and negentropy. And that life and death, you might, because one's called death physics. Entropy is death physics. Negentropy is life physics. Those two have to have a balancing act. And they will. I think they will. I think our model right now of cosmology, the so-called Big Bang, is absolutely incomplete. Hmm. I've been. I wrote a big textbook, two-volume textbook on cosmology, and debunked it with a hundred and seventy-nine refutations on the Big Bang theory. But that's what's popular, and it's like a religion. It's what's popular in science. Mm -hmm. So, what is your view on like the the panpsychist view uh, that there's an intelligent living mind within all things, and also goes hand in hand with Hermetic philosophy and the first principle? Um, of mentalism. All mind. Yeah, all is well, mind. Well, there's, there's challenges when you get down to the quantum level, but even Freeman Dyson, at, uh, who used to be at the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton, who I've spent time with, uh, he he believed in a panpsychic universe. The list of people who are panpsychics are pretty impressive. <laughs> there's a good thousand names I could rattle off on a panpsychic world. So we can't prove it or disprove it yet, but we, we certainly can't completely rule it out. I really believe that there's something there, and I believe that uh, the, the farther we go, even Nuc uh, Monte, Montague, whatever his name was, the guy, the Nobel Prize winner for found the, the virus, HIV virus, you know, he was doing work on memory of water, water memory. And they thought it was crazy and thought it was wild. But he found out that some sort of fields around DNA were given off fields and it was stored in water and that maybe, maybe that's occurring. I'm finishing up a textbook right now on the origin of life again and um, another one. And I, I'm, when we look at the hydrothermal vents and the compartments of sulfur, hydrogen, and iron compounds in order to create the first RNA and this and that, all those models, if you take Luke's work and put water in there, there's a common denominator, water, maybe there's a field in there, and maybe that field is more universal than we realize. And so then there may be a panpsychic field that's there, that's there. So I can't rule it out yet. I can't right. say that's what it is. I can't rule it out. But I do believe that it's... The, our materialistic view is basically curtailed right now, and it's got a boundary on it. Hmm. We, have, we have to keep open. So what do you see as the cross-section? Because you've studied so many of the ologies, right? And what is the correlation between the potential hidden order in, in cosmology and the hidden order in human behavior? Because I know you studied the intersection. They're the same principles. Same thing. You know, I would say that we live in, an, in a universe with an infinite number of pairs of opposites at all scales of existence for eternity. 
and there's no beginning or an end on it. The idea of a beginning or an end is is partly our own projection of our own finite thinking of our amygdala. Our cosmology is limited by our own thinking. Just like religion, if you study religion, if you you look at it, it started out at geomorphic, went to zoomorphic, went to anthropomorphic, and goes on and on and on. And it's basically our phobias and our philias and our dissociations from what's frightened us to creating these artificial systems of religion. But ultimately, it goes through the development of the brain until it reaches the most abstract level, of the highest IQ, which is pure mathematics of expression. And even the mathematics, it's a symmetry of all pairs of opposites. That's the highest religious construct. If love is a synthesis synchronous of opposites, that's the ultimate religious experience. But that's also the ultimate science experience. The symmetry of opposites is what the particle accelerators are helping us realize. Hmm. True religion and true science, I don't believe, fight. Hmm. It's a pseudo-religion in the bias sciences that fight. Hmm. That's a powerful reminder because... You're applying the scientific approach to human behavior in many ways, as you do on the cosmological scale as well. And um, I, I feel, and I feel like many people do in the next coming decades and century, that there will be somewhat of a more uni- unified understanding of science and spirit, and they're, that they're the same, the same thing. <laughs> I don't think there's any real difference. Uh, you know, when you meet somebody and you resent them and you puff yourself up and proud and you project your values on them and try to live in your values, you have futility. And so the futility humbles you to come out of the pride and go back into authenticity. When you look up to somebody and put them on a pedestal and infatuate with them and you're conscious of their upsides, unconscious of their downsides, and conscious of your downsides, unconscious of your upside, and too humble to admit what you see in them is inside you, you're blind and ignorant of both. When the process of doing it, when you look up, you eventually get resentful to them because you've sacrificed futilely to them and built up resentment to eventually go, I want my life back. So nature automatically has built in systems to make sure we're brought back to the true self. And knowledge, when you're infatuated, you don't know somebody. When you're resentful, you don't know somebody. You only know somebody when you really love somebody and see both sides simultaneously and are poised and present and productive and powerful and prioritized and really present and purposeful at that moment with them. That's when you know somebody. So you don't know somebody until you love them. Hmm. So I, I'm a firm believer that that's the ultimate omnipresence, omniessence, and omnipotence is love. Hmm. That's the ultimate objective. The journey from judge to lovement. Uh, lovement. The journey from— Why not? <laughs> it's the integration in the mind yeah. to make it happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, the transcendental spiritual experience is, is still a mental equanimity. It's hmm. equanimity of the mind. It's objectivity of the mind. It's a synthesis and synchronous of the mind. It's, a, it's the dialectic and it's, and it's simultaneous dialectic. No matter what we call it, no matter yeah. what our language is, it's still the synthesis of the mind because it's our mind that's giving us our experience. The journey from judgment to love, I've heard you speak to the kind of three qualities that make it even possible for us to judge. For example, an action, an, an action or a trait. You want to speak into anything there as well? Because that's yeah. a very powerful reminder. Yeah, I've, after going through... <laughs> Millions of people taking them through the, ju- the judgment process. Um, we've narrowed it down to those three things. It's a physical trait. I, I admire or despise their big nose or I, their ears or their butt or their boobs or their this. There's physical traits that they go. When, when a guy and a girl meet each other, they're ruling people in and out based on these physical traits. <laughs> That's a judgment. And we, I, I like those teeth. I don't like those teeth. I like those eyes. I don't like those eyes. There's a physical trait. Then there's also some action they did with their motor actions and 
inactions too much or too little of some motor action or inaction. Commission, omission. We judge in law, commission, omission. So it's traits, actions, inactions. Phys- those are physical and characterological traits as well, right? Well, character, uh, break down character. It's one of those three. Your or behavior trait, trait, is yeah. your behavior is a movement. Right. It's a behavior. When you judge people, you have a false, anytime you're proud, you have a false causality that you assume that with your actions, you have caused through somebody else's perception, more advantage and disadvantage, more positive, negative, more gain and loss, more, you know, advantage to them than disadvantage. The second you do, you have a false causality because they actually had both pain and pleasure in your action and they may not have seen it. You may not have seen it. You're both under illusion. You're gonna, they're going to blame, oh, I'm so happy when I'm around that person. These people, oh, I'm, I'm so good. I'm, and these are delusions. And the same thing when you're ashamed, you're assuming that you cause them with your actions more pain and pleasure, more loss and gain, more negative than positive, more disadvantage and advantage. And if those people buy into it and you buy into it, you feel ashamed and they feel resentful. Mm-hmm. And these are all illusions. And, and that all those can be neutralized by asking quality questions that hold you accountable Accountability is being able to ask the questions that allow you to liberate yourself from those emotional bondages, those false causalities, false attribution bias, which was called the karmic wheel in, in Buddhism. Mm-hmm. That's all the karmic wheel is, is the causalities that we falsely attribute to ourselves or from other people. And, and uh, so when we actually see them simultaneously and there's nothing but love there and they're perfectly balanced, we're on the dharmic path. That's mm-hmm. the path of, of, uh, of the bodhisattva, yeah. the light. The path of wisdom. Path and- of wisdom. What is wisdom in your eyes? It can obviously be cultivated irrespective of age, I feel like. Yeah. Not, of course, experience will give us opportunities to reflect and cultivate well, that wisdom. You may, but- be, you may not be distorted by the raise, being raised. You may be as a young child and be more aware. Yeah. And then you get taught that which isn't so. Yeah. As long as you touch that timeless place within you, then you have access to wisdom, yeah. right? And so is there anything else you want to share in how wisdom can be cultivated irrespective of It's age? the same as what I'm describing. Yeah. Wisdom and love are inseparable. Mm-hmm. If you look at my, my cufflinks, they yeah. say wisdom and love. Love it. I was told when I was 14 years old, I met Howard Hughes and Howard Hughes told me that there's only two things they can never take away from you is your love and wisdom. So dedicate your life to love, the love of wisdom and the wisdom of love. And he told me, learn how to read, because I, I had learning problems. And so that's, uh, I'm loving wisdom or what I'm up to, philosophy. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Love or wisdom, philosophy. Beautiful. Whoa, there's so much to unpack in this episode that I'm just like, I'm so excited to go back and watch it myself. Um, some other questions that I do want to, I do want to ask before we wrap up. What is, what is God? When somebody asks you that, what does the word God mean to you? <laughs> Well, that's an interpretation based on the level of the brain function that people are in. If they're in their amygdala, it's going to be probably geomorphic, zoomorphic, which would be plant or animal-based, or uh, anthropomorphic, animal to human-based. And there's a gradation there. Because when we were frightened one time, the thunder you know, frightened us. And we had gods for the thunder and gods for the lightning and gods for the rain and yep. gods for the desert and dry. And we had gods for everything. There are thousands of gods that are extinct today. <laughs> we went from all these pantheistic, polytheistic, and eventually down to a few so-called monotheistics. So these are just brain developments. And they're basically associations from things that frightened us and seeking for the things that we think are going to appease that. So we're going to pray for that which is unobtainable and try to avoid that which is unavoidable. And these are stages of awareness. When we actually are fully aware in the brain and we see both sides of things, we see that we need the predator and the prey in order to evolve. So we find the benefits of the predator and we keep that in check. And that's, I learned from a martial artist. A martial artist uh, in Cardiff, California. I was staying in Cardiff for a while. 
And um, this guy said, uh, I'd like to study philosophy under you and I'll teach you martial arts. I said, let's have a good swap. So he said, here's the first class. And he stood in front of me and we bowed to each other. And he said, I want you to try to kill me. And I said, I have no desire to kill you. And he says, then you have no desire to be my student. And I said, well, I have to kill you to be your student. He said, well, you have to try. And I said, okay. And so I didn't really want to hurt the guy. I, but I was under the illusion I could. So I decided to punch him, real punch. And when, he, when I punched, it's like the whole world went into slow motion. He grabbed my hand, turned it, threw me off balance, pulled me up on my tippy toes, and pulled me forward and kissed me on the cheek. <laughs> and then put me back on my feet. And I was going, okay. Now, the, at first, I didn't really want to hurt him. But after that, I had a tiny bit of like, <laughs> like to get him, you know. So then I decided I'd do a forward kick, right? And when I did, he grabbed my foot, turned to the side, grabbed it, pulled it off balance, made me hop, grabbed me, <laughs> kissed me on the cheek. I thought, well, maybe he's a gay martial artist. <laughs> so, so he pulls me forward like that, puts me back on my feet. Now I decided to do a back kick. And the same thing. No matter what I did, he just maneuvered me and kissed me on the cheek and put me back on my feet. And then I and I was getting more just determined to want to try to get this guy, right? And um, he said, first lesson in martial arts. He says, to a neophyte, you perceive attack. To a master, you see an invitation to dance. So when you're prepared, there is no predator or prey. You've transcended the pair of opposites for a moment. Hmm. So... Can we obtain that? Yes. Can we sustain it? No. Is there somebody that thinks they've obtained it? No. Don't don't buy into people that are gurus thinking that they've obtained it. That's an illusion. Yeah. They're just human beings. People get trapped in that. But I, I stop and think about it. On the planet, no matter how much you know, it's an infinitesimal. Yeah. And whatever you know, that's why Socrates was considered wise because he knew that he didn't know. Mm. If you zoom out enough, you're just he, nothing. Yeah. So you, you realize that you don't know, and what you don't know is vastly more than what you know. And so when you go to the center of the, the sun, you realize that what that little planet is insignificant. Whatever you know there is not a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> and to the super galaxy cluster, Lanikea, and even beyond the great attractor, that's nothing. So you know nothing. So that's why Einstein said, live with holy curiosity and continue to keep humbling yourself and keep learning and keep growing. So I'm thirsty for wanting to continue to tomorrow. Every day is an opportunity to learn some more. Mm. And you, it's never ending. And I don't have a desire to be done or be enlightened or any of that stuff. I'm I'm relatively aware. <laughs> That's it, and a whole lot of ignorance. Yeah. So I I say anything I don't love is still my ignorance, and so my job is to learn how to love that and find the love in every event. Because we go around and we put all these little morals and structures on it, which are all man-made, and we put things that this is bad and good, the devil and good, and all that. None of that's there. That's just an illusion of the mind. It's a it's a Maya. But actually taking the time to ask quality questions to see both sides simultaneously is liberating. And it keeps us at the forefront of continually wanting to expand our consciousness. Mm. And I'm interested in that, the involvement of human consciousness, not the definition of here's what's right and wrong, none of that. It feels like as our circle of knowledge grows, so too does that perimeter of ignorance. And that actually brings humility to the pursuit of you can still grow and learn a lot and still realize how much you don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I I had a guy interview me one time. He says, when did you become enlightened? I said, did I become enlightened? When did you get the illusion I was enlightened? I say I have a relative awareness based on what I know, and I'm an absolute idiot when it comes to technology, <laughs> how to do a cell phone fix. 
<laughs> you know, there's something, cars, I haven't driven a car in 31 years. I don't even know how to, I couldn't even tell you what cars are on the road and how to drive them today. Yeah. I'm completely ignorant in things that are lower in my values. And I have specialists that I delegate everything to. I only teach research, write, and travel. Everything else is delegated away. I don't cook. I don't clean. I don't do anything. I've, I've surrounded myself with people who love to do the things I'd like to delegate. Anything that requires an external motivation to get me to do something, I delegate. Hmm. Anything that's intrinsically an inspiration to me, I fulfill my life with. That's powerful because that area of fulfillment, it feels like the more that we develop mastery in, what, in that which we value most— will equate to how fulfilled our life is. So yeah. any- yeah. Well, whatever you do that, you you can't wait to be philanthropic. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. When you, when you, money without meaning leads to debauchery, money with meaning leads to philanthropy. You have a desire to want to contribute and inspire other people and, and, and invest in inspiration and contribution instead of rescuing desperations. I have no interest in rescuing desperations. I'm interested in inspiring inspirations. So good, man. Thank you. I'm just digesting, integrating a lot of this. I feel like we'll have to continue to run this back because I could literally sit here and speak for you with you for 12 days also. This is like <laughs> my my highest excitement to be exploring these areas of, of conversation. And it seems, and it re- just resonates so true to me that this is the life path that you've chosen to live is in extreme alignment with what life wants of you. And therefore you're getting the reflection for so much more philanthropic work and impact and service. And uh, it's just so cool to see the continual evolution of that. Um, is there is there something that you want to that you've claimed for your life that you want to create at a bigger scale while you're still in this life? What's like your biggest vision for humanity? Well, uh, <laughs> I I just have a desire to teach, research, and write. You know, chop wood, carry water. Teach, research, and write, and travel the world. I've I've been to 194 countries speaking. I'm still got a few more to go. I set that as a goal when I was 17. I'm still working on that. I'm going to keep researching and writing and and teaching and writing books and doing presentations and interviews and whatever way I can disseminate knowledge. Every possible way to disseminate information, I've identified it and I'm movies, radio, television, podcasts, whatever it takes, I will share information. I spend doing that seven days a week. I hope to do that at least until I'm 100. Yeah. It feels like, uh, and it would be a good, good note to end on as well, which will also be valuable for the audiences. I know you... Uh, keep very clear metrics about every area of your life and how that's very powerful. When you know the score of where you're at in your life, you can actually take aligned action to increase it. So what are those areas of life that are important for us to- Well, I believe that I've broken life into seven areas. I believe we have an inspired mission, which is a spiritual quest. Uh, Whatever that is, it's highest on your value. I believe that we're here to wake up our genius and contribute innovative, creative, you know, original thinking to the planet from something from the core of your own being. I believe that we're here to be of contribution and service and have a sustainable fair exchange and some sort of transaction with people so you can give and take and have uh, realized that you're contributing. Uh, I believe that you're here to master finances and not be a slave to it and have money working for you. So I learned a long time ago to take whatever I earn and put half of it into investments and, and put it into things that contribute to quality people. Not I don't gamble with things. I just put it into high quality companies that serve people. And I believe that we're here to have a global family dynamic. I don't see myself in a little house and little place. Yeah, I live on a ship that goes around the world, as you know. <laughs> and so I'm going to every country. The universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country is a room in the house. Every city is a platform to share my heart and soul. I, I have a global family. I'm never away from anybody. People go, well, so-and-so's left me, and, and I'm all by myself. No, we're living on a planet. It's a big house. They're in the other room of the house. Instead of walking and talking i i zoom and i you know communicate through other means it's just a it's just a relative perspective on space and time 
And socially, I believe that, you know, you want to be able to make a contribution. I, I, at the end of your life, did you do everything you could with everything you were given? You want to be able to say, absolutely. And so I wanted to make a contribution, meet amazing people, do amazing places, go to amazing places, do amazing things with amazing people. And so that was mapped out. And if you don't map up your life, you're going to live by duty, not design. And I think you, most people are sitting there disempowered, basically taking drugs and you know removing organs. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that your, your body is designed to do something amazing. If you're living authentically, it, it rallies. So I'm a firm believer that those spiritual, mental, career, or vocational, financial, family, social, and physical, all areas, any area of life you don't empower, people overpower. Mm-hmm. So I'm a firm believer in empowering. I wanted to exemplify that on planet Earth. Powerful. So just to recap, that was the seven. If you, can you riff them off again? Just the spiritual ind- pursuit. Yeah. Mental, vocational, financial, familial, social, physical. Beautiful. Powerful to to track where you're at within all of those. Uh, a couple of quick questions. I know you could probably unpack these at length and at nauseum, but. Uh, your relationship with psychedelics. Can you share uh, your your journey earlier on and the shift that happened with that? Well, I had a psychedelic experience when I was in my teens. Yeah. I haven't touched any psychedelics or drugs since, yeah, since I was 17. I, once I learned what I could do with my own mind and uh, I, in, you know, just exploring them with my mind, I had no desire for any more psychedelics. But it was an experience. I'm glad I, was getting, I got that experience in the 60s but I have no desire today. Yeah. I just remember hearing a rough story, which people, we can save maybe for another time, but you uh, meeting an individual that taught you the power of meditation or introduced you to that. Yeah, I was sitting I was sitting in, at uh, Haleiwa, North Shore of Oahu. Um, we were stoned. <laughs> and uh, You were a teenager? Oh, a teenager. And I was sitting there with a guy. Um, we were chatting, and there's a little dog named Root Dog there. And we, we looked out over the knoll at the beach, and we, uh, on this beach we saw this guy doing a yoga headstand. But the knoll was in the way, so all we could see is from the chest up. Yeah. And in our state of consciousness, we thought, did that guy come from space and doof into the ground? We thought, wow, that must have hurt. <laughs> you know, we're in an altered state. And this, <laughs> this guy's just doing that. And, and we're looking, and we're going like, that guy's upside down. He's stuck in the ground. His head's in the ground. You know, what do we do? And we're just kind of freaking out by this. And all of a sudden, we see his feet curl down from a yoga position, and he came up, and he put his hands up like this, and he was facing directly at us. And he walked directly to us and sat right before us. And we're like, you know, if we put our hand like this, he disappears, you know? (laughs) And uh, he goes, you guys high? And we're like, yeah. He goes, really high? He goes, yeah. You know, he's like an ego. I'm higher than you, you know, kind of stuff. And he, he goes, you guys want to get high? And I go, okay. He says, meditation, man. Meditation is higher than anything else. And so that stuck in my head. I thought, that's interesting. And it wasn't very short after that that I almost died, and then I got sent to a meditation class. And so I, once I learned about the power of my mind and the power of the questions I asked, had no desire for drugs after that. Never have touched a drug since. Wow. The last thing that I want to ask is because you're somebody that I'm perceiving as just like bursting with life force energy. And I feel like when you live a life of alignment and you devote yourself to it, you get that universal energy to support you in that process. As you raise your vibration, I feel like life reveals to you what is also on that plane of existence. Have you had any wild mystical experiences with extraterrestrial or energetic visuals or something that you haven't shared before? I'd be curious to see. I've I've had um, 
synchronicities. I was meditating in Pasadena, Texas while I was going to professional school. And I was just in this meditative state with tears in my eyes. And all of a sudden, I got this strange multi-car crash. I mean, like, whoa, just took me right out of the meditation. Like, whoa, what's that? And I thought, that's weird. I'm in a meditation. Why would my brain resonate with that? I thought, that's strange. And it kind of shook me. And then um, you had the experience I, of like a car crash, or like a uh, yeah, like I saw this. I saw these cars that did uh-huh. big pileup of this multi car crash, yeah. and I thought, what a strange thing to have during a meditation. I never would have imagined that as a meditation. Never happened before. And so I broke my meditation, and I thought, okay, I'm sitting here. It's probably around six thirty, seven o'clock at night. It's just dark, and I decided to go and get a bag of peanuts at this little store around the corner. Now, where my apartment was at the time, you couldn't see the road. It was in the middle of a complex. As I walked down there, and I walked in, I came back out to eat the peanuts. And down the, down the road, about 400 yards, was sirens and red lights and stuff. And something about it lured me to want to go down there. And I walked back down there, and I walked right to the position that I saw in the meditation. And I thought, wow, that must have occurred right at that time that pileup must have occurred right at that time, and that must have somehow a sound from the impacts or something must have gotten to me or something. I, and I, I came up with this idea that there was a multi-car pileup, and there it was. Literally 400 yards or 450 yards away was this car pileup. So I've had these synchronous awarenesses. You know, people are going to have things happen. I think most everybody's had some that are so associated, so closely associated, it makes you pause and wonder, how did you know that? How did you get that? A premonition of whatever. But I can't say that I, that runs all the time and I have any, you know, super psychic experiences or, yeah. you know, I, and I haven't had any experience of terrestrials. I had a, a guy that said he had an terrestrial experience and, and he had a bunch of friends that had these experiences, but I felt like I was left out. And so I thought maybe I need to go out in a field and bend over and put my butt in here <laughs> and, and, and hope to get probed or something, you know? <laughs> But nothing ever worked, so I didn't. I can't say I've had that. I've been studying exobiology for years. I was actually tried to be a special missions astronaut at NASA for that at one time. Oh. But I haven't seen anything other than possible bacterial exobiology so far. The rest of it is questionable. I, I'm, I'm open to it. I just haven't seen anything that's solid. Yeah. And I'm waiting for something solid. Yeah. I love that. I, I definitely feel like those extrasensory perceptions can open up as we cultivate on our journey and yeah, and are deeper, even energetic, subtle. Who knows how they they manifest? But yeah, like, I, I just don't want to exaggerate. Totally. I, I you know I'm, I feel that I'm I'm too dense, I guess, to have those really amazing experiences. <laughs> but I have I have definitely had some synchronicities that are pretty, you know, mind blowing, and something that keeps me in pause of thought. Hmm. I mean, I've had a few, and I've written them down in a document. I keep records of them just in case there's some pattern that shows up over time, but they're far in, in between that are more authentic for me. Hmm. Well, I, I definitely think that the most miraculous thing is recognizing the magic in the mundane and in our everyday life and finding, you know, find, finding the beauty in everything that uh, isn't necessarily those high extraterrestrial, extrasensory, perceptual um, things. Is there anything else you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Just whoever's listening out there. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Um, Give yourself permission to be yourself. Why be second at being somebody else? Why not be first at being you? The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies that you will inject or impose on yourself from outside infatuations with others. 
So just know that whatever you perceive in other people, you have within yourself. Don't play small, play authentic. Don't play big, just play authentic. The moment you do, you automatically, spontaneously tend to expand your space and time horizons, and the magnitude of space and time in your innermost dominant thought will determine the level of conscious evolution you've obtained. And so you'll continue to expand. And once it's outside your day, a week, a month, a year, you know, a decade, a generation, and a life, welcome to an immortal legacy that you have offered the world, you can bring to the world. So give yourself permission to be the most magnificent you, and a legacy will be born. This might have been one of my favorite podcasts I've ever done. Honestly, thank you so much for sharing yourself today. This has been so profound and it's such a pleasure to get to know you and share this energy. So, No, thank you. Appreciate yeah. the questions. I don't get these questions all the time. So great. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, everybody that's been tuning into this episode of the Know Thyself podcast, please let us know what resonated most. You can find Dr. John Martini on, is it drjohndmartini.com? Just drdmartini.com. Great. So people can find, you guys can all find uh, more about him there and we'll leave links for things in the description below. I appreciate you for coming on this journey. Let us know in the description, in the comments, on the Q&A on Spotify, what most resonated with you, what was most impactful. We love hearing those stories when you reach out and until next time, be well. 